Hello, and welcome to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Torella. And I'm your better, prettier, younger host, Tori. We're sisters who are obsessed with true crime and love gal palin with you about cases. You can expect the occasional curse word, lots of friends quotes, and all the 90s nostalgia. To get in on the conversation, check us out at KillerQueensPodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at KillerQueensPodcast. And we're on YouTube at KillerQueens, a true crime podcast. Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge and let's talk about some true crime. Hey, you guys. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. Welcome back to Killer Queens. I wanted to say the same thing you said the other day about whose mind is it anyway. <laughs> yes. The podcast where everything's made up and the points don't matter. Exactly. Except not everything is made up and there are no points, so they really don't matter. Yeah. Yeah. So strike that from the record. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we are getting into a crazy, crazy, crazy case today. Mm-hmm. That was what, 17 crazies that you just said? And that's At one, least. two, few. Yep, exactly. One, two, three, few. <laughs> sure. Yeah. This case was highly suggested or recommended or whatever. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, thank you to Victoria Fountains, Nicole Rosenwax, Carly Bodick, Bridget Jacqueline, Lauren Claire, Aaron Martin, Lindy Evans, and Destiny Rinko. Yeah. I mean, I know. The list just keeps on going. Yeah. We do also have some trigger warnings in this episode. There is a discussion of physical, sexual assault, miscarriages. One of the survivors is a minor when she's taken. So, mm-hmm. you know, just things to think about. If that's something you need to skip, we totally get it. Yes, absolutely. And thank you to Madison for writing it up. Yes. All right. And before we jump into the case, we just want to remind you guys about our Patreon. We have so much fun stuff going on over there. Um, we are changing a little bit up as well, but you can always get ad-free episodes. If we have a two-parter, you can get early access to the second part. We're doing some, what we just call kind of like shoot the shit recordings where we just kind of chit chat about whatever. And we release those on the Patreon feed and you can get up to three episodes a week on Killer Queens. And then if you hang out with us on Tuesday nights in the Spotify green room, that's four episodes a week, y'all. Exactly. And Spotify is 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. Yeah. Well, and technically five a week if you listen to the hangout things too. Yeah, true. Wow. Or six if you also join us on our Instagram lives on Thursdays at 11 Central. I mean, that's a lot of Tori and Torella. Some might say too much. I would. Yeah. I, I don't want to tell you I feel think about or... it. You shouldn't hang out with us at all. <laughs> Just right. It is too much. But... It is too much. Yeah. You're going to want to take a step back from the relationship at this point. <laughs> but yeah. So if you want to hang out. too fast. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yes. We need, we need to pump the brakes here. We need a break here. Yes. But if you want to hang out with us, there are options. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. You can have as much or as little of us as, as you feel. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Shall we? I think we shall. Okay. 
So this is over, well, you clicked on it, so you know what it's over, right? But it's Ariel Castro, the kidnappings of Michelle Knight, Amanda Berry, and Gina De Jesus. So between 2002 and 2004, three girls between the ages of 14 and 21 vanished from their streets or from the streets of Cleveland, Ohio. They were all last seen within a few blocks radius of one another and seemingly disappeared into thin air. A short phone call after one of the girls went missing was the only clue and it didn't provide police with much to go on. Then almost 11 years after the first woman went missing, the three girls were found having been held in the home of a local bus, school bus driver. All three girls were alive, but had suffered through years of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. The man who had abducted them seemed like a normal guy to his friends and neighbors. However, he turned out to be a violent control freak who made three women his sex slaves. The scariest part, all three women knew the man who abducted them and held them as prisoners. Ugh. Woof. We're like, it's coming in hot for real. I know. And it's like, it's so crazy. And I know, you know, we'll get into it, but it's like, they did know him, but that he kept them for that long is so rare. Mm-hmm. It's just, ugh. And I will say, so my roommate is from Ohio. I have a few Ohio friends. Ohioan? Oh, they hail from Ohio. Uh-huh. And I was discussing it with my roommate. And this is no shade to Ohio. Well, a little bit of shade maybe, but it's just meant as a joke. But everything bad happens in Ohio. I know. Sometimes it feels like the new Florida. Mm-hmm. Ohio's yeah. Florida. Ohio is the Florida of the Midwest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. Just a lot of lot of junk going on up there, y'all. Yeah. Shit be crazy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's get to who the survivors are. Michelle Knight was born April 23rd, 1981 in Cleveland, Ohio. She grew up with her mother, Barbara, her grandmother, Deborah, and twin brothers, Eddie and Freddie. Oh, my. Don't do that to your kids, y'all. Edward and Fredward. <laughs> but they went by Eddie and Freddie. <laughs> Edward and Fredward. <laughs> Earl and Pearl. Yeah, exactly. married couple, but still. There isn't much information about her father. She spent most of her life on the west side of the city in a house on 60th Street. Michelle loved fire trucks, and after a tour of the local fire station, she decided she wanted to be a firefighter when she grew up. She loved animals and also thought about becoming a veterinarian. Michelle did not grow up in the most stable household, though. She said that it wasn't easy to find clean clothes or food to eat. Her mother would keep her out of school for several days at a time to care for her twin brothers. She basically was the parent. Mm -hmm. She was the person who made sure the boys had what they needed. Yes. At five years old, a male family member began sexually assaulting her, and this continued into her teens. She'd never told anybody because he had threatened to kill her. Mm. At 15, Michelle ran away from home and began sleeping under an overpass inside of a garbage can. She was tiny at 4'7 and could fit completely inside the trash can, and her nickname was Shorty. She struggled to find food, but soon learned that she could eat at a nearby church. This is where she meets a drug dealer named Sniper, that sounds terrifying, who offered her money and a room to stay in if she would run drugs for him. While it wasn't the best foundation for a friendship, Michelle became close to both Sniper and another drug runner. And for the first time in her life, she felt safe and cared for. How bad does your home life have to be if a guy named Sniper, who's- Who you don't know very well. Yeah, and who's asking you to run drugs for him, 
makes you feel the safest and most cared for you've ever felt. Mm-hmm. This is a lot about her home life. Yeah. Sniper taught her how to protect herself and how to shoot a gun. He gave her a room in his house to live in. And she said that she felt important and loved by both of them. There was no sexual aspect to their relationships, just two people that Michelle finally felt she could trust. Unfortunately for Michelle, though, Sniper was soon arrested and she had to return to sleeping in a garbage can underneath the overpass. One day, someone recognized Michelle living on the streets. They called her father, who immediately came to pick her up and bring her back home. She was sent back to school, where she was so far behind that they initially started her in seventh grade. She was 16 years old and the target of bullies. She was able to take a test and move to the ninth grade, but that didn't stop the other students from ridiculing her. Her grades were poor, and Michelle felt alienated from her classmates. After having sex a few times with a boy named Eric, Michelle learned that she was pregnant. She then found out that Eric already had a girlfriend and she never told him about the pregnancy. At 18 years old, Michelle gave birth to a little boy named Joey. Michelle wanted to be a better mother than hers had been, and she wanted to make sure that Joey had a good life. This was difficult, though, since she had very little money. In 2002, while at her mother's house, her mother's boyfriend was drunk and tried to pick up Joey by his leg and ended up fracturing his leg. She brought him to a hospital where the Department of Social Services was notified. Despite her mother's boyfriend admitting that Joey's injury was his fault, not Michelle's, Joey was taken from his mother's care and placed in a foster home. Why? I know. It's so sad. Like, mm, I don't know. It's, I understand that they have to like, you know, take stuff really seriously. Mm -hmm. um, And that's very important, but it feels like there's some and not others, you know, like the Gabriel, what's his last name? Fernand, is it Fernandez? Maybe. I can't remember. The Netflix thing. I didn't watch it, so I can't. I'm sorry that I can't I did, but I always. I know. It's Gabriel. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of cases floating around out there. It is. It's Gabriel Fernandez. Okay. But they didn't, you know, they didn't follow up on his case. No. And he ended up passing away from all the abuse that he suffered. Yeah. And then it's like there are cases where children don't necessarily like shouldn't be taken away and they are I don't know it's just like why are the standards not all the same the Hart family right Susan Powell's kids Josh Powell like you know all those things and I listened to that podcast I think it's called do no harm it was really heartbreaking and interesting but it follows families whose kids were taken away by DCS and didn't need to be and then the kids were actually subjected to abuse in foster homes Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of rampant before. abuse yeah. mm-hmm, in foster care. And I do feel like from what we know about Michelle's experience with DCS and social services or um, child care services and stuff like that, it w- it seems like it was the first incident. Now, I do I do think that they should have taken it seriously 100%, but I feel like Michelle was the kind of person that would be like, okay, I'm going to fix this and I'm going to make sure this never happens again. Yeah, like we're not going to be around my mom's boyfriend anymore. Right, absolutely. Because they give everybody else, it seems like, or give a lot of other people a ton of chances and they gave her from what it appears to be one chance and that was it. Well, yeah, and then the person who says, I did this and other people know that he did this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he gets away scot-free no consequences for him. Yeah. Yeah. It's awful. 
Amanda Berry was born on April 22nd, 1986, and grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. They're all born in April. That's interesting. That's kind of weird. There isn't much public information about Amanda's childhood, but in contrast to Michelle's younger years, Amanda seemed pretty close to her family. Her mother, Luana Miller, her older sister, Beth, and father, Johnny Berry. She grew up on Cleveland's west side with her mother and sister. She attended John Marshall High School in Cleveland. At just 16 years old, Amanda had already secured a job working at a local Burger King. She described herself as a homebody who spent lots of time with friends and family. She made good grades and always finished her homework on time. She was very interested in fashion and always had to make sure that every part of her outfit matched. That's not my journey. (laughs) (laughs) I just attempt to make sure that every part of my outfit doesn't have a booger on it. (laughs) Um, She hoped that one day she would have a career in fashion. Georgina, who went by Gina de Jesus, was born on April 1st, 1990 in Cleveland, Ohio to Felix and Nancy de Jesus. She grew up with a sister, Mayra? Or Myra, maybe? Myra? I'm not really sure how to say that. I'm sorry. And brother, Ricardo. She attended Wilbur Wright Middle School and was nearing the end of eighth grade, excited to start at John Marshall High. Gina was in some special education classes as it took her a little longer to grasp things at school. Despite a little difficulty with learning, Gina was a good student and liked by her classmates. Most days, she'd walk the 40 blocks from her home to school, often through rundown areas. 40 blocks! That's insane. Wow. I struggle to walk like two blocks. I'm like, oh my God, how much longer? I know. 40 blocks. (laughs) 40 blocks. Oh my gosh. Wow. Gina was a happy girl who was very close to her family. She described herself as outgoing, a girl who loved being silly and dancing. And her sister said that Gina looked up so much to the movie Selena. She said no one could tell her that she was not Jennifer Lopez in the movie Selena. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, it was really sweet. I was like, I got to watch Selena again because that movie is amazing. But oh my it's, gosh, it's so good. What a good movie to watch all the time and somebody to look up to. Oh, uh, yes, absolutely. I love it. So let's get into the first abduction. On Friday, August 23rd, 2002, Michelle was going to another meeting with social services about regarding or regaining custody of Joey. She'd been doing everything she could to attend all the meetings and supervise visits with her son. As she was walking, she found that she'd gotten lost and wasn't quite sure where the meeting location was. She walked into a family dollar and asked someone behind the counter for directions. A man standing in line overheard her and offered to give her a ride. Michelle recognized the man. He was the father of a girl she knew named Emily. Not wanting to be late to the meeting and thankful to find someone who knew where to go, she got in the car with him. The man told Michelle that he needed to stop by his house quickly to check on his puppies. Michelle was like, that's fine, and she'd wait in the car. When they arrived at his house on Seymour Drive, he pulled in the driveway, they got out, and walked into the house through his back door. He came back out and told Michelle she should come inside and hang out for a bit that she could see the puppies. He told her that she could have one of the puppies to take home to her son. She agreed. As she walked inside, she waved hello to a group of people who lived next door, and they waved back. Once inside, she said she felt uneasy because she couldn't hear any whining that she'd expect from puppies. And Torella knows because she has a puppy, they don't quit whining. Oh my gosh, the whining all the time. (laughs) Yes, exactly. The man said that the puppies were upstairs and that she should come up and see them. Still uneasy, she walked upstairs and she found out that there were no puppies. Mm. She saw a photo of the man's daughter, Emily, and she asked if she was there. The man said, yes, she was home just downstairs. 
They walked downstairs into a room that the man had set up prior to picking Michelle up. He had her trapped. He tied her up in the room with an orange extension cord. She hung like a U, hung by her feet, her neck, and her arms. She said that she just cried too shocked to fight back. He proceeded to masturbate in the room before throwing money at her. He told her that she was there as a friend and that he'd let her go by Christmas. As a friend? As a friend. Hey, everything's fine. This is just friendly kidnapping. Like, Don't yeah. worry about it. No big deal. I'll let you go in four or five months. Yeah. Don't worry about it. No big deal. Yeah. But what? Michelle said that the man hated her. He initially believed her to be a 13-year-old sex worker. When he found out that she was 21, he was livid. She said that she believed he wanted a child. The man had an obsession with sex workers, which is why he'd throw money at her after assaulting her. She's the one whose nickname is Shorty, right? Mm-hmm. I'm starting to get confused now, but that's just disgusting. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's obviously a pedophile, but... Clearly. Yeah, and he's mad at her for being... For not being a sex worker. Right, and for not being 13. For not being a child, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Like, okay, well... He's just... Mm -hmm. I fucking hate this guy. Yeah. Well, okay. I almost said something that's like, it's just ridiculous. Because like, it's your fault for not picking the right person. But it's like, no, don't pick anybody. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, exactly. Like... Yeah. Don't be mad at her for something that she cannot control. And he needs to, like, not be doing the things that he's doing. Ugh, it's just... It's disgusting. Mm Mm-hmm. He moved her to the basement where he used thick chains around her stomach and her neck to keep her tethered to a pipe. He kept a motorcycle helmet on her so her screams were muffled. There was a bucket with a lid where she could use the bathroom. Michelle said that the way she was chained up, it was impossible for her to lay down. He brought her fast food from time to time, but he didn't feed her often. He kept her there for several weeks, but Michelle lost track of time easily. The windows in the house were boarded up, so it was impossible to tell how much time had passed. The man continued to physically and sexually assault Michelle whenever he wanted. She said he would watch television shows about people with strange sexual fantasies. Afterwards, he would come into her room so he could do whatever he saw on the TV. Sometimes she'd beg him to let her go, and other times she'd tell him how much she hated him. He said that once he had two other girls in the house, he'd let her go. Michelle begged him not to bring anyone else into the house. She didn't want anyone to go through what she was going through. Eventually, the man moved Michelle out of the basement to a bedroom. The room was small, but not much bigger than a closet, and she was still chained. It wasn't long before Michelle figured out that she was pregnant. The man had figured it out too. He hit her in the stomach with the round side of a barbell. When she miscarried, he blamed her for it. He would often tell her that no one was looking for her and no one missed her. He stopped giving her any clothes and left her with only one sheet on her dirty mattress. The man didn't have any heat in his house and Michelle would get so cold that her lips would turn blue and she could see her breath. Mm. One day, he brought an old television into her room for her to watch. Michelle just thought that he was in one of those moods where he felt like being nice to her. She quickly found out that he wanted to make sure that she could see the news, see that no one was looking for her and see that he'd taken another girl. It's so crazy too because it's like, I mean, this is not a huge house, Mm-mm. but it's a while before the girls even, like, see each other. Like, she found out from the news that yes. he taken somebody else. Like, it's just, it's... Right. Wow. Well, but the thing is, okay, so he was very... He was known for having a radio blaring music. Yeah. And 
his first steps for taking a girl is to leave her in the basement for a while. That's true. Yeah. Ugh. And she's not on the ground floor. She's upstairs. So this mm-hmm. is two floors. Yeah. Or three floors apart. Yeah. Ugh. Okay. The second abduction on April 21st, 2003, 16-year-old Amanda Berry almost called out of work. The next day was her 17th birthday, and she would rather spend the day having fun than working. However, being the hard worker she was, Amanda went to her shift at the local Burger King in Cleveland. She got off early and called her sister to pick her up, but unfortunately, her sister was at work and couldn't make it. Amanda tried calling a friend to give her a ride home, but they didn't answer. So she just decided to start walking home. When she was walking near Lorraine Avenue and West 110th, just four blocks from where Michelle Knight was last seen, a man pulled up in a car next to her. She recognized the driver as a local elementary school bus driver and the father of one of her friends. He offered her a ride to his house where he said his daughter was. Amanda agreed and rode with him to his house on Seymour Drive. And like... It's just so they recognize him, so they feel safe. You know, this is mm-hmm. not a situation where they're just like getting in cars with absolute total strangers and like he's a he's a school bus driver. You would trust that. Yeah. You know? Exactly. Mm-hmm. When they arrived, Amanda followed him inside, but she didn't see her friend. The man said he might that she might be taking a bath and they could wait. He proceeded to show Amanda around the house, leading her to an upstairs bedroom. There was a peephole cut through where the doorknob was, and she was able to see into the room. She saw a woman sleeping in front of a television, and the man said this was his roommate. He then took Amanda into the next bedroom and into the closet, where he told her to take her pants off and then sexually assaulted her. Afterwards, he forced Amanda down to the basement, taped her wrists and ankles up, and then chained her to a pipe. He put the same motorcycle helmet over her head that he'd used on Michelle. He turned the lights out and left her in the basement with the television on. She watched her mother and sister on the news pleading for any information about where Amanda was. She said that this is what gave her the strength to keep fighting. And it's so sad because Michelle doesn't have anybody looking for her. Mm -mm. She doesn't have that to, I mean, she just has the fight in herself to keep fighting. Yeah. But she doesn't have anything like that to keep her going. No. Yeah. It's It's so so sad. sad. And he uses that against her, you know? Well, nobody's Mm -hmm. looking for you. Yeah. Nobody cares that you're gone. Exactly. I'm just trying to break her. Mm-hmm. Four days after her abduction, the man moved Amanda upstairs to a bedroom. She was chained to a radiator with a big lock secured around her waist. Where is he getting all this shit? Like, I can I have no a human-sized lock, please? Just, and I, I know that's not what it is. I'm just saying. Just mm-hmm. a week after Amanda went missing, the man used her cell phone to call her mother. He told her that he had Mandy and that she wanted to be with him. Nobody called her Mandy except her close friends and family. The family didn't recognize the voice, and with new phone tracking technology, the police were only able to narrow it down to 30 to 40 blocks. Hmm. That's not really specific. No. Police flooded the area for weeks, hoping that the phone would be used again, but unfortunately it wasn't. Once a day, the man would bring Amanda a pack of crackers or a bag of chips. She would shower once a week usually. However, everything had strings attached. He would insist on her showering with him and would continuously sexually assault her like he did Michelle. The man would have short periods where he'd be nice to Amanda. Once he asked her if she'd like anything to pass the time in her room, Amanda asked for something to write in. So he brought her a journal with a small lock on it. She used it to document the amount of times he sexually assaulted her. 
She wanted to be sure that if she was found, the man would pay for every terrible thing he did to her. And she would just like tally, you know, like make a mark, make a mark, make a mark. She would put, she used X's as well. So sometimes it'd be like three X, five X, one X. Yeah. Oh, Mm -hmm. so sad. Like, I mean, it's smart to do. It is. And, and really forward thinking, because how could you know that you, I mean, unfortunately in that situation, I'm sure they all said that they thought I'm not going to make it out of this. Like he's going, he's going to kill me. Yeah. It's just pretty amazing. I know. Michelle recalled that the man brought Amanda into her room once and introduced her as his brother's girlfriend. Michelle knew he was lying because she'd seen Amanda's face on the television. She thought it was odd that Amanda was completely clothed while she was basically naked. He then brought Amanda back to her own room and the girls didn't see each other again for several months. Ugh. And you have to wonder if the reason why he kept Amanda clothed and not Michelle was because that's all part of the captor kind of thing. He wants to pit them against each other. Yeah. Like, look how well I'm treating Amanda. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then that breeds resentment. Yeah. I want mm-hmm. you guys to fight each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. So let's talk about the third abduction. On April 2nd, 2004, 14-year-old Gina de Jesus was walking home from her school with her friend Arlene. She wanted Arlene to come to her house, but she was grounded. Arlene called her mom, who told her to come straight home now. The girls continued on their own separate paths to their own separate houses. Gina was used to walking alone and didn't think much of it when a maroon car pulled up next to her. She recognized the man driving. It was Arlene's dad. He was even a friend of Gina's dad. He asked Gina if she'd seen Arlene. Gina told him that Arlene had walked off towards her home. The man asked Gina if he, she could drive around with him and help him locate her. Gina got in the vehicle. Instead of driving around and looking for Arlene, the man drove Gina to his house on Seymour Drive. He asked for Gina's help moving a stereo inside of his house. See, this reminds me of Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs, where he's like, oh, can you help me? Or uh, I guess they got that from Ted Bundy, but yeah. still. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you help me do this? And then, yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, these girls, like, again, they recognize him. Mm-hmm. They're friends with his kids. They And he's using his kids always yes. to yes. lure these girls in. Yeah. He's like, hey, you want to come hang out with her? Hey, you know, uh, uh, of course you're going to trust your friend's dad. Like, mm-hmm. hate it's him. awful. Hate him. Yeah, of course. When she walked inside, she noticed the man behaving oddly, which made her uneasy. She said that he was fixing his eyebrows, trimming his mustache, and cutting his nose hairs. <laughs> not exactly foreplay. What are you doing? Yeah. It's disgusting. It is. And it's not going to make you look any better, you dumb shit. Well, yeah. And also this man is, I mean, she, Gina is 14. 14. It's disgusting. And like, how can you, I don't understand it any in any way, shape, or form, but like, your daughter is the same age as her. How does that not mm-hmm. gross you the fuck out? Like Exactly. That's a baby, that's a baby to you. Yeah. Yes. He then started touching Gina. Gina immediately pushed him away, telling him that he could go to jail for doing that. The man apologized and said he'd take her home, but they couldn't go out the same door that they came in. Why? <laughs> yeah, exactly. He led her down to the basement where he grabbed her and chained her up. Gina said that initially he didn't secure her well enough and she was able to free herself. She tried to run, but the man threw her down and sat on her back. Gina began kicking him as hard as she could. Finally, the man overpowered her and chained her back up. Just over a month after abducting Gina, the man began sexually assaulting her. Mm. I guess we didn't say in the beginning that you're going to want to throw stuff out the window. 
we should have warned you, but I think at this point, if you've been a listener, you know that that's pretty, mm-hmm. pretty much standard mm-hmm. practice here. Yeah. Get ready for it. Throw all of your shit out. Take a break. Go get it. Bring it back in. Throw it back out. Yep. Because it's going to piss you off. And this guy, this guy, mm-hmm. this motherfucking guy is going to piss you off more than anything, especially, well, throughout the entire thing. But at the end, ooh, girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fuck him. Yeah. All right, so who is he? The man who had abducted Michelle, Amanda, and Gina was named Ariel Castro. I feel like a lot of people are super familiar with this case. I think so too. If not the case entirely, you know the name and you kind of know a little bit about it. You know what I mean? Like there's, because it's, it was so highly publicized and for good reason. I mean, it's just an amazing case. But it was everywhere for a long time. And it's a pretty recent case. I mean, not when it started, maybe, but when it ended. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. (sighs) Castro was born on July 10th, 1960 in Puerto Rico to Pedro and Lillian. He was their third child. Two years after Castro was born, his mother found out that his father was married to another woman and had four children with her. Wow. I guess he just, like, forgot to mention that. I mean, it is an easy mistake, right? Yeah. Having like, a complete... But you didn't ask me if I was already married and had other kids. Well, yeah, that's true. And that was her fault, right? She didn't... You got to ask the questions. Yep. Got to ask the questions. I mean, it's not his job to tell her that he's got a complete other life with four other children. Yeah. And I mean, how is he to know what she knows and doesn't know if she doesn't ask? How does one have that much time? That dude, I don't... I do not get it. And like to have two wives, yeah, <laughs> six or seven children, and like to spend enough time with each of them that at least one of them doesn't suspect. Yeah, maybe he maybe he was known for like spending lots of time away from the family, and I don't I don't know I don't yeah, know that's crazy. So he left Lillian and his three children, including Ariel, and went to be with his other wife and children. Not long after that, Lillian moved to the United States to work in Pennsylvania. She left the children with her maternal grandmother. At five years old, Castro was reportedly sexually abused multiple times by a nine-year-old boy. At the time, he never told anybody and went on to develop an obsession with sex and and compulsive masturbation at a young age. So he is giving the name Ariel a bad name. Yeah. Ariel is a sweet angel. In the sea, Ariel singing from the top of her lungs about wanting to be. Why would she want to be a part of this world? Maybe she doesn't. I mean, it's just like it's. I can't believe his name is Ariel. I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But also, I mean, like it. You see this. I mean, we kind of talked about this with Eileen Warnos too. You know, oh, where it's yeah. like the pattern. Like you kind of go ahead. Yeah. It, of course, there is absolutely no condoning it. Of course, there is no. Like, you're not, I feel like you're not justifying it. You're explaining yeah, how it could happen. Yeah, you kind of start to put the pieces together and be like, okay, well, this, you can, yeah, see how it kind of went the direction it did. Yeah, because when you have something completely horrible and tragic and traumatic happen to you at any point in your life, but especially at a young age, it kind of, I mean, it changes who you are in the trajectory of your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, there's, it can, yeah, there's two types of people. There's people who 
go through abuse and then go on to abuse people. And then there are people who go through abuse and make sure that they never treat people like that. Yeah. And some people who go that second route become advocates for fighting abuse and really make a a big impact on the world in a very positive way. And I think for children, especially when they go through something like that, there's a level of disconnecting your emotions. Yeah. Because it's it protects you. Well, yeah, you have to have almost an out-of-body experience, right? You have to just close yourself off from it completely. Mm-hmm. So therefore, I'm sure if you go the route of afflicting abuse on other people, then you can remove yourself from that entirely as well. Right. You start to dehumanize other people. Mm-hmm. You lose that like social connection with them and you don't see them as people anymore. I mean, you kind of have to go like, not have to, but some people will go, you know, sociopath or psychopath with it where they're just like, I don't see this person as a person anymore. Well, it reminds me of that movie, The Cell, where the guy, Carl Rudolph Starger, Mm -hmm. has his victims and he looked at them as dolls. Mm -hmm. And he, they were not people at all to him. They were just dolls. But Mm -hmm. then... Some in some cases, and we'll get into it a little later, the abuser will tell themselves or believe it that the person that they're abusing wants it. <sighs> yeah. They're like, no, we're in love. She we're, you know, this was consensual. They wanted this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that why you had to chain them up? I'm confused. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like if you if you gotta chain somebody to keep them around, then you know, maybe it's not meant to be. I think so too. Yeah. If you love them, let them go. Yeah. Like that might be your first indicator that the relationship is not working out. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Good call. Yeah. In 1966, Lillian returned to Puerto Rico to care for her children. According to Castro, she began physically and verbally abusing them, insulting them and hitting them with belts in her hands. In 1970, the family immigrated to the United States and settled in Cleveland, Ohio. Castro's uncle owned a record store and gave him a guitar. He learned to play a guitar and spent time in several bands as he grew up, eventually becoming a professional bass player in a local salsa band. And they said that he was a phenomenal musician. Like, could hear anything and just play it by ear. He was really, really, really talented. And you think about those kinds of things and you're like, he could have gone so many different directions with his life. Yeah. Just a waste of talent and a human being. Absolutely. Yes. In 1980, Castro began dating his 17-year-old neighbor, Nilda Figueroa. Nilda was also from Puerto Rico. Once her family found out that she'd lost her virginity to Castro, they kicked her out and Castro took her in. In 1981, Nilda gave birth to their first child. It was then that she said Castro's behavior changed drastically. He became incredibly controlling and abusive. He exercised his control in all aspects of her life. She was only allowed to leave the house with his permission. She needed his permission to stop, to shop in stores, to watch TV, or to use the phone. He became physically abusive, beating her whenever she didn't follow his rules. His violence continued to get worse, and he eventually began beating Nilda so badly that he broke several of her bones. She had to promise she wouldn't report him before he allowed her to go to the hospital. In 1989, Castro physically assaulted Nilda in front of his brother, who called the police. Castro was arrested, but the charges were dropped when Nilda wouldn't cooperate. Mm. That 
drives me crazy because of course she's not going to cooperate because she doesn't want to get it even worse if it doesn't work out. Like, yeah. And, you know, there is a, there's a level of a lot of times in a relationship like that, you are broken emotionally and spiritually. So it's like, you start to think that you deserved it or, you know, that, that you're nothing without this person. And, you know, Mm -hmm. you start to believe some of the things that they tell you. So it's like, well, if I report him, I'm getting rid of the only good thing I have in my life. Right. You know, like, or, and as awful as it is being beaten every day and having a home to live in, it's stable. It's toxic. It's, it's awful, but it's, it might be the, might've been the only stable thing she had in her life. Right. The devil, you know, is better than the devil. You don't. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know there's, there's reasons that, but I don't know, like if there are situations where obviously like, you know, the police charge people with something, even if nobody is pressing charges or, you know, you can prosecute somebody. So like, why in this situation can't you do that? Like, just because she's an adult, it doesn't mean that she's in a position to be able to press charges. Right. I I don't know. Just frustrating. Mm-hmm. In 1992, Castro, Nilda, and their four children moved to a four-bedroom, one-bathroom house at 2207 Seymour Avenue. Castro padlocked every door in the home and did everything he could to soundproof the basement. He told his family they were not allowed in the basement. Eventually, he tinted all the windows, which he later boarded up. Nilda wasn't allowed to use the phone. Castro began to lock his family up in the house when he left for a gig with his band, sometimes lasting up to four days. Wow. I mean, later that year, Nilda became pregnant with their fifth child. Castro didn't want another child and punched and kicked her several times in the stomach. In October of 1993, Castro pushed her down a flight of steps, fracturing her skull. Soon after, Nilda began to have seizures and was found to have a blood clot in her brain that had hardened into a malignant tumor. She was treated and eventually released back home. On December 26, 1993, Castro came home extremely drunk and began to physically assault Nilda. Their 12-year-old son, Ariel Jr., ran out of the house and down the street looking for help, with Castro running after him. Nilda took the chance and locked her husband out of the house. The police arrived to find Castro banging on the front door. They arrested him, but he was released on a $25,000 bond. As Nilda entered the courthouse to testify before a grand jury in the case against Castro, he threatened her, telling her that if she said anything, he'd kill her and the children. Nilda, still terrified of Castro, said the attack never happened and the charges were dropped. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, Nilda moved out of the house and took the children to her mother's home. Castro began to cut off most of his contact with his family and started to delve deeper into his obsession with sex, violence, and control. He installed security cameras and mirrors throughout the house on Seymour Avenue, wanting to make sure that nothing could happen without him knowing. After attempting to run over Nilda's boyfriend with his car in 1997, Castro lost all custody of his children to Nilda. Jeez. But still, he's not in jail. No. I mean, it's a good thing that the custody is taken away, but this is an extremely violent person. And has exhibited that on multiple occasions. Mm-hmm. That have been documented. Yeah. And like, he tried to run over this person with his car, which should be an attempted murder charge. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's crazy. 
Despite the violence that had taken place in his home, Castro appeared to be relatively normal to those who knew him. His neighbors said that he was friendly but often kept to himself. They thought it was odd that all the windows in his home were boarded up, but they just assumed it was because he played music and they wanted that he wanted to keep the noise from getting too loud. He played bass guitar in a salsa band with two other men. They said he was one of the best musicians they'd ever met, and they said that during breaks at gigs, Castro would often try to dance with women who'd already, who had already brushed him off earlier in the night. His bandmate said that he seemed to think that whatever he wanted, he deserved to get. They said that he mostly kept his personal life to himself, but seemed pretty normal to them. Neighbors who went to school with Castro said that he had a great family and was an average Joe. He seemed outgoing, smart, and talented. He played softball and was very into cars. After the divorce, Castro became more secluded. He was very guarded about who could come into his house. He would only enter and exit through the back door. If anyone came to see him, they would meet on the front porch and stay there, even his mother. Like, that's a red flag. Yeah. Yeah. For the past 22 years, Castro had driven a school bus for the local school system, played music at night. On the outside, despite some odd quirks, he just seemed like a regular dude. I feel like his quirks, though, are pretty significant. Yeah, it's not like, I don't know, liking to collect Russian dolls and display them in your house or... um, keeping your Christmas lights up all year long and having Christmas. You know, like, it's it's not one of those weird quirks where it's like, well, he's kind of kooky, but he's a nice guy. It's like he keeps the house boarded up completely. <laughs> he doesn't let anybody inside of his house. Like, these are really, really strange things. Yeah, exactly. And I'm just assuming that the neighbors don't know that he tried to run over somebody. Right. <laughs> I guess. But, Ugh. like, a school bus driver? Mm-hmm. I don't know. So do, does this stuff not... I guess it doesn't stay on his record. Like, surely to God, they would check. See, that's what I was thinking. Like, didn't they do a background check on him? Because couldn't they have seen that he had... But if, if she didn't press charges, do they just... They just were dropped, so they don't just stay on there. Like, hey, he... what? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. It's just scary. It's It reminds me a lot of Wesley Allen Dodd, just the mm-hmm. slipping through the cracks. Yes. So I mean, many times. There were so many signs there. Mm-hmm. And so many chances to put him away. Mm-hmm. And if you rely on somebody who's being abused to take that on, a lot of times it's not going to happen. You can't put that on them. Yeah. Well, it's not the victim's job to right. make him pay. Right. That's what the justice system is for. Yeah. It's just not fair. Mm-mm. Hey, you guys, it's us again. Yay, it's us. We threw, we threw you for a loop on this one. <laughs> so we know that a lot of you have been asking like WTF, where are episodes one through 44? And guess what? Now you can have them. So let's just remember though, we need you to take a little caution here. We didn't know exactly what we were doing back then. And we started this podcast as just a fun thing to do as sisters. We had no idea that it would grow into this super awesome club with you guys. So what we're saying is the audio wasn't super amazing, but the content is 100% us just being us and talking about some true crime with 90s flair. Okay, so here are the details. You'll be able to access our what we're calling OG episodes in your favorite podcast app through a private and custom RSS feed link. So to grab that, head over to killerqueens.link slash OG 
and snag episodes 1 through 44 today. That's killerqueens.link slash OG. So Castro now had three women imprisoned in his house. Eventually, all three girls were moved into separate rooms upstairs. Sometimes he would chain Gina up in Michelle's room with her. All three women experienced different things while being held captive, but all three of them were routinely beaten and sexually assaulted. The girls were rarely ever all together at once, except when he allowed them out of their rooms to clean the house. How nice. Yeah. Everything had to be done perfectly to Castro's orders or else the girls would suffer. He continued to tell each girl separately that he would let them go back home in a few weeks or before the next holiday, but it was never true. He would constantly berate Michelle, telling her that no one was looking for her and that no one loved her. He often told her that he hated her. She believed that she was the most hated one in the house. Though all three girls were being held captive, it was clear that Castro favored Amanda and Gina over Michelle. The girls said that he would play mind games to pit the three of them against each other. They began to develop jealousy of one another, wondering why one of them got more food or got clothes or was able to bathe when the other wasn't. Despite these feelings, the girls did their best to keep one another strong and fighting. The searches continued outside for Gina and Amanda. Castro even participated in some of the searches for Gina, as well as donated money to the family to keep the searches going. How cruel. Oh my God. And he knew Gina's mother. Or was it Gina's father? Yeah, he was friends with Gina's father. And he would yeah. like go over and like they, they would hang out together. He'd go over to his yeah. house and they would talk about his missing daughter. Mm-hmm. It's sickening. Terrible. And he had her the whole time. Yeah. The whole time? You, the whole time? <laughs> the whole time? <laughs> Sometimes he would play Amanda's voicemails for her, allowing her to listen to friends and family who missed her. He would always cut it off just before she could hear her mother. Amanda watched a talk show on television where her mother was a guest, and she spoke to a well-known psychic about Amanda's disappearance. The psychic told Amanda, uh, told Amanda's mother that she was dead. It broke Amanda's heart to see her mother's reaction. Wow, that psychic is a piece of shit. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't personally believe in psychic abilities, but you know, as a psychic, this person knows damn well that she has no idea what she's talking about. And you're preying on a family Mm -hmm. who is desperate to find their daughter. And this was on the Montel Williams show. Of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The girls said that Castro would test them by leaving the door open or their chains unlocked. He would pretend to leave the house, and if they tried to escape, he'd beat them. As time went on, the girls earned more and more of his trust. It's unclear how often Castro left the girls out of their rooms or when he did, but Amanda said that she would try to do things to have some normalcy. When Castro was out of the house at work or with friends, they would sing and dance and watch the Vampire Diaries on TV. Amanda even recalled waking up early one morning to watch the royal wedding. She said it, it was something happy and she wanted to watch it. All three girls said that they considered escaping many times. They considered putting rat poison in Castro's food. They considered running out when they saw an open door. However, they were so terrified of the punishment that might follow that they never followed through. I mean, and you can't blame them. Like, no, not at all. Yeah. Because who knows? I mean, he he was so big on testing them. Who knows when it would have been an actual, him right. actually leaving or testing. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know. I cannot blame them for for wanting to poison his food. But who knows if it would have worked. If yeah. he'd just gotten sick or found out about it. Right. Yeah. That what would, would they have be, gotten after that? Yeah. yeah. And you know that there are definitely times that he would, you know, 
I wouldn't put it past him to sit outside of that house in the driveway for six hours to see if one of them came out. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he had nothing but time. Exactly. During her captivity, Michelle had gotten pregnant five times, and each time, Castro would induce a miscarriage. He'd either hit her in the stomach, he'd kick her, he'd stand on her until he felt as though she'd lost the baby. Mm-mm. Horrific. Michelle remembered Gina sitting on her bed with her and rubbing her stomach as she miscarried. When Amanda realized that she'd missed her period and couldn't keep any food down, she was petrified. Castro soon figured out that Amanda was pregnant, and unlike Michelle's pregnancies, he wanted Amanda to give birth. On Christmas Day of 2006, Amanda gave birth to a baby girl named Jocelyn. She delivered Jocelyn in her bedroom while laying in a plastic kiddie pool. Michelle had helped deliver the baby while Castro sat in a rocking chair nearby reading a book about birth. Gross. Mm -hmm. Just hate him. Michelle said that when Jocelyn came out, she was blue. Castro told Michelle that if the baby died, then she would die. She said that she started chest compressions and gave rescue breaths until the baby started crying. The birth of Jocelyn was the beginning of Castro's downfall. All three girls had a renewed sense of purpose. Amanda fought to have everything as normal as possible for Jocelyn. At first, Castro was worried about buying things for her at the store because he didn't want to attract attention. Jocelyn's first piece of clothing was two of Castro's socks that he cut arm and leg holes in. Mm-hmm. Who's watching you at the store? Right. Like, I don't Just give the child some clothes, my God. He eventually gave in and began providing things the child needed. As Jocelyn got older, it became more problematic keeping her inside. She questioned why her mother and the other girls were in chains. He would take the chains off while he supervised them and always had a gun in his waistband. Castro had developed a deep bond with his daughter and finally took her outside to a park when she was around the age of three. He began to bring her toys home and allowed her to roam throughout the house. He even began to bring her to Sunday church services. Wow. Castro showed photos of her to friends and family, saying that it was his girlfriend's daughter. One of his daughters pointed out to him that the little girl looked an awful lot like one of Castro's biological daughters, but he denied it. Like, that's weird that it's your girlfriend's daughter because she looks just Just like like you. you. (laughs) Yeah. I wonder how that happened. When Jocelyn reached school age, Amanda created a special kindergarten classroom for her in her bedroom. She hung colors and letters on the wall and had a whiteboard to write on. Every morning, she and Jocelyn went through the motions as if they were truly going to school. They would eat breakfast and then they would, quote, walk to school. She taught her that she had to stop at the streets and look both ways before crossing. Then she'd, quote, drop her off at school, tell her she loved her, and then become her teacher for the day. Mm. So sweet. Mm -hmm. That is so sweet. That just shows how the love, just the love. Mm -hmm. Amazing mommy. On Monday, May 6, 2013, Aurora Marty was sitting outside on her front porch on Seymour Avenue when she heard shouts coming from across the street. She looked over and saw an arm waving out of the front door. It was Amanda's arm. Just a few minutes earlier, Jocelyn had run upstairs to Amanda's room to tell her that her daddy's blue car was gone. Amanda was very hesitant since she knew the punishment that she'd have to endure if Castro caught her outside of her room. She told her daughter to go look in the garage for him to see if she saw him anywhere. Jocelyn returned and said that her father was nowhere to be found. Amanda and Jocelyn went down to the front door, which was shockingly unlocked. Unfortunately, there was a storm door still closed that had a padlock, and it was shut. 
Amanda began kicking the bottom of the door and screaming. Gina and Michelle heard Amanda but didn't leave their room, scared that Castro would catch them. Amanda was able to make a small gap at the bottom of the door. She, she stuck her arm out and continued shouting. A second neighbor, Charles Ramsey, also heard and saw the commotion. Charles Ramsey is the hero we all deserve. His interview is amazing. Oh my gosh, he is so precious. I know. So Ramsey recalled that he was eating a Big Mac when he saw the arm waving. He walked over to the porch and heard Amanda yelling that she needed to help getting out and that she had been there for a very long time. Ramsey thought it might be a domestic dispute. He kicked a larger hole at the bottom of the door that Amanda was able to use to crawl out through with her daughter. She jumped into Ramsey's arms and hugged him tightly. Ramsey was shocked and was quoted as saying, I knew something was wrong when a little pretty white girl ran into a black man's arms, dead giveaway. Amanda quickly used a phone to call 911. She told the dispatcher that she was Amanda Berry and that she had been kidnapped and missing for 10 years and that she was finally free. Hmm. Police were dispatched to the home on Seymour Avenue. When they arrived, they found Amanda holding her daughter tightly. She told them that there were two more women inside. Police broke down the doors and began to search the home. Gina and Michelle were scared, believing that Castro had returned and was punishing Amanda. When police entered the room, they were shocked to find Gina and Michelle still alive. The three women and Jocelyn were quickly transported to the hospital. At 6.16 p.m., police found Castro at a nearby McDonald's where they arrested him. He was like always at McDonald's. I know. And it's really strange because I don't know. I mean, I don't know. There are so many different fast food chains. Like, why McDonald's? I don't get it. Yeah. It's like, you could literally, like, throw a McDonald's Happy Meal on the side of the road. Like, they've tested this. And, like, Mm -hmm. eight years later, it's still in pristine condition. The (laughs) the fries, for sure. Yes, exactly. It's disgusting. It's pretty gross. Now, I'm, I'm not too good for... I'm not too good for Ronald McDonald, though. Oh, no, I eat it. Yeah, I definitely eat it. None <laughs> of my business what's in there. I know, exactly. <laughs> Two days later, he was charged with four counts of kidnapping and three counts of rape. The judge ordered an $8 million bail on him. At the hospital, Amanda, Gina, and Jocelyn were soon released with no serious lasting physical injuries. Doctors, however, didn't believe that Michelle would survive for much longer. She had a severe bacterial infection and was not doing very well. Fortunately, after days of treatment... Michelle was released from the hospital. I mean, they they actually put her in hospice care because they didn't think she was going to make it like another. Yeah, they said that she was. Days. Yeah, they said you have you probably have two days to live. Yeah, and like, it's just the whole thing is tragic. Like, I'm not saying it's not, but that would have been such an additional tragedy to like have survived all those years and to get out of the house mm-hmm. and then die a couple days later from this oh, bacterial infection. Ugh. But the thing is, Michelle is tiny yet mighty. Uh-huh. She is a teeny tiny little thing, but she said that when she was in hospice, they said that she only had a few days to live. She would get up and sing and dance. She was like moving around all the time. She was like, if I'm going to die, I'm going to live the best, the rest of my life mm. having fun. Yeah. I mean, literally like Ariel Castro picked, the wrong women to fuck with. Mm-hmm. I mean, like he tr- he did everything that he could to break them, and like nobody was looking for Michelle anymore because after she went missing, when they tried, like the police tried to contact her family to see if she'd ever made it home or whatever, they never got in touch with them, so they took her off the missing persons list. So 
he was trying to use that, like, nobody cares about you and blah, 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 whatever. I think if you can't get a hold of somebody to know if they're still missing, then probably don't take them off, leave them on till you right. find that out. But that's not what they did. So it was like kind of a clerical error that she got removed. But I don't know. I just, people cared about her. I guess just, they cared about her and they still do. And the thing yeah. is, it's like, if he was using that to be like, nobody cares about you, so you shouldn't care about yourself, it worked exactly opposite. Because exactly, all of these women are fighters. Still mm-hmm. to this day, fighters. Mm-hmm. They did amazing things in the face of complete hell. Absolutely. Michelle is just, I am shocked that there is a, a human being in the world like this. I know. All of them, but Michelle, like, she had so many chances to be like, well, forget it. Mm-hmm. What's the point? Mm-hmm. All of them did, but you know what I mean. Yeah. In July of 2013, Castro pled guilty to a total of 937 counts, including murder, kidnap, and rape as a part of his plea bargain. He said that he treated the girls well and that many of the rapes were consensual. Mm. This is what I'm talking about. Throw everything that you already threw out the window, go and throw it out again, just set it on fire, bring in the ashes, throw them out too. Also, can you... I don't think you can use the word consensual and rape in the same sentence. Oh, yes, you can. Yeah, I guess if you're Ariel Castro, you can, right? Well, he was very... So in his interview with police, he was very careful the verbiage that he used. Like, yeah. the wording was very... Because he wouldn't say that he kidnapped them. He would say that he abducted them, mm-hmm. which kind of takes the, you know... It means the same thing. Yeah. But he was very careful about what he would use. Mm-hmm. And he wouldn't yeah. say rape. He would say the sexual encounters yeah. or something. Yeah. He's got to justify it. Like, yeah. Yeah. He's, they wanted this. Yeah. I didn't and do anything he, wrong. It's like he believes his own lies. He's been telling himself this for mm-hmm. so long or something. Like, mm-hmm. again, you had to chain them. You had to lock them in. You had to beat the shit out of them to scare them from running away. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, not absolutely. consensual, sir. No, it's not. And so he even went so far as to saying he admitted that he induced Michelle's miscarriages, but he also said that that was consensual. <laughs> like, yeah, because like she... Michelle would be like, please jump on my stomach uh-huh. and beat the shit out of me yeah, so I don't have your barbell. child. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe she didn't want to have his kid, but I know for a fact that she didn't say, hey, do whatever it takes. Even if I die, that's fine. Mm-hmm. And Michelle is not able to have children now because of this. Mm, motherfucker. She would not have done that. No, absolutely not. <sighs> Castro seemed to believe that he and the women were a family. The judge sentenced him to life in prison without the possibility of parole plus 1,000 years. Castro began a sentence at the Correctional Reception Center in Orient, Ohio. Just one month into his sentence, Castro was found dead, hanging from a bedsheet in his cell in an apparent suicide. Because he's a fucking coward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He held these women captive for, for ten? over 10 years and he couldn't make it one fucking month in a cell. No. No. He deserved to be in the same deplorable conditions mm-hmm. and have everything that he inflicted on them happen to him. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't handle better than he treated them yeah, treatment for a month. Yeah. Piece of shit. Yeah. Michelle Knight is now happily married and has legally changed her name to Lily Rose Lee in hopes of a new beginning to a new journey. She's in the process of starting a nonprofit called Lily Rays of Hope to support victims of child abuse, domestic violence, and human trafficking. She has chosen to forgive Castro, saying that she doesn't want him to hold her back or control her life anymore. 
Her son's adopted parents felt it was in his best interest to stay with them. Michelle understood and was happy that to find that Joey was in a stable and loving home. I can't imagine how hard that was for her. Exactly. And that's, I mean, that is real love, right? Because she's like, of course she wants her son back, but to know that like he's in a stable home, you know, she didn't want to rock that for him. Mm -hmm. And she didn't, you know, just so that she could be with him and just the amount of strength that took, I can't even imagine. No, I can't either. And she said that one thing that kept her going was Castro, I guess, saw it within himself to give her some crayons and paper and she would draw him Christmas cards and birthday cards. And, you know, her son was one of the things that kept her going. And, Mm -hmm. you know, for her to say, okay, I I want what's best for him. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Amanda Berry has partnered with the U.S. Marshal Service and its Operation Safety Net Initiative. Over one month, they were able to locate 35 missing and endangered children while working with Amanda and other state and local partners. She works as a missing persons advocate for Fox 8, a local TV station in Cleveland. She received her honorary high school degree with Gina and is raising her daughter in a loving and safe environment. Unfortunately, Amanda's mother died while she was in captivity. She believes that Jocelyn was a miracle sent to her by her mother. Hmm. Gina de Jesus also received an honorary high school degree and finally got her driver's license. She became an ambassador for Northeast Ohio Amber Alert. She and her cousin founded the Cleveland Family Center for Missing Children and Adults to focus on serving the families of missing people. Amanda and Gina remain close and have published a book together on their experience, while Michelle has also published her own. Yeah, and we'll link to those books as well if you want to check them out. I really do. Oh, yeah, just incredible, just incredible stories. Mm-hmm. This one, I mean, it's tragic and awful. Oh my gosh, I mean, I cannot imagine the hell and nightmare that they went through, but it just really shows you how amazing and resilient people can be. Mm-hmm. And there was a positive ending to it. I mean, they're all thriving now. And I'm I'm just, I don't, I know it's silly for me to say maybe, but I'm just so proud of them. Like, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. We'd love is. to hear I your mean, thoughts on this case. It kind of gives you Instagram that, or like, Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening and we will meet you hope, back here next week. Like, Bye. You know, it is possible. I know that the, the song for the show is created and composed by Stephen like Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. And our know, logo was created by Sloan Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can I find mean, more of her work have to go on what Etsy. Right. Visit um, us at KillerQueensPodcast.com for merch and other info you know, about turning the show. that pain into something good and helping other people. Mm-hmm. And that's something that Castro couldn't do. He had to hurt other people. Yeah. Well, and he couldn't take it away from them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. They're just incredible women. Incredible. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for listening. We love you so much and we could not do this without you. So thank you a million, billion, zillion. And we will catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye. Bye.